Hi, welcome. Okay, uh, thanks everybody for joining us. Um, I, and thank you for the reminder that you guys have uh, have given me to make sure everybody here knows who is attending live. There is a chat room, uh, which is on our website, which should even be functional within a few minutes. Um, so if you go to the Unfinished Tales page, uh, the uh, the web page, just uh, just Google Myth Garden Unfinished Tales. Uh, and you'll find it. Uh, there should be a chat window there that you can use uh, if you want to discuss with each other during class. Uh, if not, that's totally okay too, but just want to let you know that that was there. Also, I have another important announcement, and that is um, it is almost time. Of course, we are nearing the end of the term here. This is our antepenultimate class. We have two more classes after this, both of them next week. We have next Tuesday's class, and then our third and final bonus class in the Europe-friendly time uh, on Wednesday afternoon next week. So, and that will be the end. Next week will be the end of Unfinished Tales. I'm uh, knowing that I have two classes left. I'm sort of planning to go a little bit more slowly today. I, I want to spend some time with the droogs uh, tonight, and uh, I want to uh, move on to. The, well, I hope to start the wizards tonight, but I'm gonna I'm gonna spend the majority of my wizard time uh, next Tuesday. So we've got between Tuesday and Wednesday to finish up the uh, the the Astari and the Palantiri, and then to answer any questions that you guys have. So that's the plan. Um, now, since the end of this class is coming, that means it's almost time for the next class. So we have kicked our democratic process into gear, uh, and just a couple days ago, the finalists for our next class have been officially decided upon by the Council of the Wise uh, through their own internal democratic process, and the answer is our three finalists for our next Mythgard Academy class are... Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card has been the runner-up in every election we've been doing so far, so I'm not surprised to see it be made a finalist again. Maybe it will finally be a bride and no longer merely a bridesmaid. Um, so we've got Ender's Game, Watership Down by Richard Adams, and uh, Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. Those are our three finalists. Voting is going on now. If you are a voter uh, in uh, the Mythgard Academy then you can go uh, make sure you go uh, and vote. The other really important announcement, and it's actually connected uh, to the fact that the website has just crashed, uh, is we need to close voting a little bit early uh, this time. Um, we had been planning to keep the voting open through the weekend, but we're going to need to close the voting as of tomorrow night. So by tomorrow night, Eastern Time, by midnight, Eastern Time, tomorrow. So that is by 11.59 p.m. on Wednesday, Eastern Time, um, we're going to close the voting. Uh, so, um, anyway, that is um, that's what we're going to be that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, you've got until then to vote. Uh, more than half, about two thirds of the people have voted already, so that's good. But uh, there's still time to influence the vote. Uh, we have seen some wild swings and dramatic comes from behind uh, <laughs> in, in uh, the voting so far. Uh, so uh, let's definitely. Uh, Let's definitely see about that. But any one of these three should be a lot of fun. I'm, I actually, I, I like all three of these, uh, like and admire these three books very much. Um, so anyway, 
Oh, uh, how does one become a voter, Charlie asks. Well, I'm glad you asked. So uh, basically this all began, you know, if you've joined us recently, this all began last August when we did a fundraising campaign because we wanted to do these classes and make them open for everybody, but the classes aren't free to run. Um, so, you know, I've been, as any of you who've known me for a while know that my own impulse is to, like, give everything away. So I've been wanting to do this, but, I, you know, I, we couldn't do it. So we attached it to the fundraising campaign. So everybody who donated at least $25 became a voter. You know, so basically, if we raised a certain amount of money, then we could have these classes. And we, you know, the fundraiser was great. The support was just fantastic. We raised over $20,000 uh, in our uh, in our campaign. Um, and so we're able to do basically, you know, a full year's worth of free classes with that, which is fantastic. But um, we're going to uh, so so, and then if you uh, if you as, as I was saying, if you donate twenty five dollars, you get to vote. People who donated a hundred dollars or more uh, get to be on the council of the wise and decide and get uh, a voice in the nominating and deciding of the finalists process. Um, so that's how it works. I said we've we've uh, had wonderful support, and that's been really uh, and that's been really great. It's there's still of course the fundraiser ended back in September, but um, you still can uh, enter. We've had a couple people who have made donations if you go again that same unfinished tales page on the Mythgard site uh, there is a link at the bottom is a, a, a big PayPal button in through which you can still donate and any donations that we still receive are uh, are, are sort of counted to where you can still enter in as a as a as a voter or a member of the council at this stage so anyway that is um, so that's how you can become uh, uh, a voter. Um, or if you're not a voter, you can just wait with bated breath like I am to find out which class we're going to be doing next. So um, I, that means, of course, that we should be able to, uh, uh, we should be able to respond to, uh, the, you know, to you guys and tell you what we're going to be doing next uh, soon, uh, within a couple days. Um, you can look for that on the Mythgard Academy Facebook page. And uh, we will be, uh, I'll certainly be announcing it next week during class. So, okay. So, as I say, we are getting ready for our next class, our next adventure, which will be a non-Tolkien book. That's not to say, of course, that we're swearing off ever doing Tolkien books again. Um, but we did want to give non-Tolkienites a, 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 an opportunity so we're gonna we're gonna do some non-Tolkien this time, and then we'll switch it up, and you know perhaps another Tolkien book will be a finalist next time. There've been several people who have been emailing me and saying we should do uh, uh, we should do uh, a uh, history of Middle Earth series and just go through the whole history of Middle Earth series. That would be fun. I'd love to do that. That would that would take a while, but I, I I'm game. Um, but again, I don't decide i i myself have no vote i have a certain amount of veto power but i have no vote uh as to what it we're actually covering so uh i'm i am i am i am a spectator of the process as are many of you so anyhow let us return to unfinished tales uh and last time we were looking at the hunt for the ring and the the battles of the fords of eisen and i didn't get to so much of the fords of eisen stuff i did talk about it a little bit at the beginning of of the class last time there are a few things i wanted to come back and touch on um two of them explicitly in connection with the Saruman and Gandalf stuff we were looking at, since we were already on the theme of discussing, of looking at Saruman and the way in which 
Tolkien is sort of considering Saruman's character. I wanted to go back to that a little bit, because this is clearly one of the things that we can see happening in the Hunt for the Ring process, uh, in the Battles of the Fords of Aizen, and then, of course, further in the Astari. Clearly, you know, I've been focusing on Gandalf a lot, saying that obviously, you know, Tolkien is continuing to think about Gandalf and his role, which is clearly true, but he's also clearly continuing to think about Saruman, and that both of these characters and their relationship is something which is clearly sort of on his mind, in which he's 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 you know going and developing further at many points. Um, so it's interesting here to see where he uh, how Saruman comes in again. So there we go. Let's see. Sorry. Let me just do one quick thing here. All right. There can be little doubt that Saruman made his offer in good faith, or at least with good will towards the defense of the West, so long as he himself remained the chief person in that defense, and the head of its council. He was wise, and perceived clearly that Isengard, with its position and its great strength, natural and by craft, was of utmost importance. The line of the Isen, between the pinchers of Isengard and the Hornburg, was a bulwark against invasion from the east, whether incited or guided by Sauron or otherwise, either aiming at encircling Gondor or at invading Eriador. But in the end he turned to evil and became an enemy. And yet the Rohirrim, though they had warnings of his growing malice toward them, continued to put their main strength in the west at the fords, until Saruman in open war showed them that the fords were small protection without Isengard, and still less against it. Okay. Um, of course, one of the things that I find so interesting here is the note that there can be little doubt that Saruman made his offer in good faith, or at least with good will, towards the defense of the West. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's sort of tempting to take the Saruman that we know in The Lord of the Rings, I mean, we know that Saruman is a traitor, and read his treachery all the way back, you know, basically throughout all of history. And, you know, there's even a, you know, it's a natural question that even characters within the story have, right? Treebeard asks that question, you may recall. You know, I wonder if even then, you know, his, um, uh, you know, Gandalf and Elrond ask that same thing, too, in the Council of Elrond. You know, um, you know again, Treebeard's memories back, remember when Treebeard is saying... Um, that uh, you know his eyes were like windows with shutters inside you know it's it's uh um how do you read that how is he reading that he's clearly sort of in retrospect saying it's you know having now seen that he's a black traitor he's wondering how far back his treachery extends everyone is asking that question but i think one conclusion we can draw from these other writings about saruman here is that we can't just push it back indefinitely um, Saruman just being a villain from day one um, is clearly not Tolkien's conception of him, and frankly a less interesting character anyway. Um, what we get to see is part, anyway, of that process of his um, corruption, of his degradation, of his turning to the dark side. Um, we don't get that dramatized quite as clearly as we see in some other cases, but we certainly do get more of a glimpse of it and more of an explanation of it in some ways um, than we got in a lot of the other writings, so, yeah, certainly in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and this, I think, is a really interesting note, which really emphasizes something which I think is, is kind of latent throughout Saruman's depiction. One of those things which, once it's explicitly said... 
becomes really clear. And now you look back at all this other stuff and you're like, oh, it, it all fits into that pattern really neatly. Um, with goodwill towards the defense of the West, so long as he himself remained the chief person in that defense and the head of its council. Um, Saruman, you can say that Saruman's weakness is pride, you know, that he becomes proud and, um, you know, pride is the great downfall of, you know, most to all of Tolkien's villains, and so, um, you know, there's, there's no question that, you know, pride is really significant in that way, and you can certainly say that Saruman is obviously guilty of pride in that same way, but I would not actually say that pride is his sort of chief vice, you know, is his biggest problem, is what we seem to be uh, given to understand is his is the, really the cause of his downfall. The cause of his downfall seems to be not pride, but envy. Um, he, I mean, you could say, like, I want to be the chief person, and so that that, that, that is pride, but, but no, it's envy, because he's always looking out the corner of his eye at everybody else. You know, he's always comparing himself to other people. It's not that he feels like other people just don't respect him enough. He's worried that they're going to respect other people more. Right? Um, it's Gandalf that really gets his goat, as we saw during the latter stages, you know, from the sort of kind of cute, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's kind of cute anyway, that cute little uh, sort of little private closeted hero worship thing that he does, where he's like, well, if Gandalf smokes, I'm going to smoke too, because all the cool wizards are smoking, right? Uh, you know, and that's, that's, yeah, but so, but this is, this is envy. This is envy. Um, and so, you know, Arthur, yes, he does He does have pride. I mean, the, the, the desire to be seen as the head guy is, is pride, but again, with him, it's about um, how other people are looking as well. He is envious of the respect that Gandalf gets. He's envious of Gandalf's power, and, and like, you know, and it, what comes out from him, even in The Lord of the Rings, right, um, uh, about Galadriel, how she always schemed for your part, right? He's always resented Galadriel because she liked Gandalf better. He's envious, right? He is envious of Gandalf's power and envious uh, of his... Um, of, of the respect that Gandalf gets. Um, so, anyway, I mean, even to, to the point where, again, even in sort of these small, petty ways, his relationship with the Shire folk, um, you know, his discovery of pipeweed, even those small things are things that he can't just let Gandalf have all to himself. He must have them too. Envy. That's just classic envy. Um, uh, so, and, and that, I think that just that, even just that one sentence there is a really interesting glimpse um, into. Um, into what's going on here. Um, but, again, when he went to Isengard, he made his offer in good faith that he wanted to be, uh, you know, he, 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 you know, in a sense you could say what, you know, although he made it in good faith in the sense that he was really planning to fight against the enemy, he was really planning to be the ally and friend of Rohan and Gondor. Um, yet even the choice, even the setting up in Isengard is itself conspicuous in this same kind of envy culture way, right? Like, he, he, he can see that Isengard is crucial. It's like this strategic epicenter of this whole region. Um, 
that there's a way in which even his desire to set up in that place, a thing which Gandalf never did, that is set up in a particular place, um, sort of allows him to be like, I am the tactical, uh, the, the tactical, you know, keystone of the entire arch of the Western defenses. Um, and when that doesn't pan out, or you know, when people forget that, or when, you know, uh, when he ceases to be, you know, when he's not treated that way, basically, um, he seems to get pretty mad. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, yes, yes, Tom, we see the same thing in, uh, Saruman taking note of, uh, of, uh, Elbereth's comment, Varda's comment that uh, Gandalf is not the third among them. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, Tom, I agree. I think that we can also see. Uh, Tom Hill was saying, you know, his wish for the ring could be seen as motiva- motivated by envy as well. I think so. I think so. Even his scorn, the scorn that he heaps upon Gandalf and upon Radagast, right, in his speech to Gandalf that's related by Gandalf to the Council in the Fellowship of the Ring, um, that kind of sensitivity to rank that he shows, anybody... This is a rule I've... This is a, a, a rule I've learned from the academic life. Anybody who's really, really a stickler about rank, you know, about who outranks whom probably has an envy problem, right? Um, anyone who is always counting, you know, whom they, uh, whom they outrank and who has seniority over whom, that's a bad, bad sign. And again, I think in, in that same way we can see, w- the way that he is sort of explicitly pulling rank on Gandalf and in absentia on Radagast um, and scorning them again, it sort of shows the same thing. And Tom, I agree, even his desire for the ring... Um, then he would uh, he, he would be able to dominate others, but again, then he won't have his rightful position, right? Then everybody would have to recognize uh, that he is the greatest, and there's not going to be any more question about that. Um, again, that's why that that's what I meant when I said, you know, this one little reference for me just kind of clicked a whole bunch of things into place. I had been kind of lumping Saruman into the pride category. And again, it's not that he doesn't suffer from pride. Um, but I, I think that just this kind of helped me to see things, I think, in a, uh, in a, in a, in a, in a pretty queer way. Dime says it sounds like her workplace, uh, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's uh, at many... I'm sure there, there are many professions that are true of this. Though I've long concluded that envy is by far the besetting sin of academia. But anyhow. Um, but um, uh, anyway... Um, yeah, Paul, good observation. Uh, you know, even the business about, you know, uh, Saruman, the, you know, of many colors, um, uh, you know, again, there's this sense in which he wants to take, uh, the good of everybody else to himself, right? He's not content to be one color in an, an array of colors, right? He wants all of the colors, right? I want everything that you have, um, and, uh, you know, and it, to, to sort of make it a subordinate part of myself. Um, good. Yana was just saying the same thing. One color is not enough uh, for Saruman. Uh, right. And it's not that he just, like, it's not that he, a, a pride person, a proud person, might simply say, you know, I am the white, and that is awesome, and white is the best. No, he's not content with that. He wants every, he wants everybody else's stuff as well. Um, yeah. Good. Good. Um, but, 
Another thing that uh, the Battles of the Fords of Eisen material is at pains to emphasize um, is the fact that Saruman, though he won both of the Battles of the Fords of Eisen, um, really screwed it up. Um, and in fact, you know, there's that fascinating moment where he makes something like the argument, not that the War of the Ring was won at the Fords of Eisen, but rather it could have been lost there, and it wasn't. Um, <clears throat> just as he said, um, uh, you know, just just as as it says in the notes to the uh, uh, the disaster of the Gladden Fields, that the War of the Ring was lost pretty much when they when the orcs who uh, annihilated. Uh, almost annihilated, Isildur and his uh, and his men um, failed to recover the ring. Um, so too, the War of the Ring was in a sense lost when Saruman blew it at the Fords of Eisen. He had an opportunity uh, and didn't take advantage of it. Um, it was clearly seen in Rohan, when the true accounts of the battles at the Fords were known, that Saruman had given special orders that Theodred should at all costs be slain. At the first battle, all his fiercest warriors were engaged in reckless assaults upon Theodred and his guard, disregarding other events of the battle, which might otherwise have resulted in a much more damaging defeat for the Rohirrim. When Theodred was at last slain, Saruman's commander, no doubt under orders, seemed satisfied for the time being, and Saruman made the mistake, fatal as it proved, of not immediately throwing in more forces and proceeding at once to a massive invasion of Westfold though the valor of Grimbold and Elfhelm continued, or contributed to his delay. If the invasion of Westfold had begun five days earlier, there can be little doubt that the reinforcements from Aetheros would never have come near Helm's Deep, but would have been surrounded and overwhelmed in the open plain, if indeed Aetheros had not itself been attacked and captured before the arrival of Gandalf. And then there's even a note, right, where he points out that, like, and don't think that the Ents would have come in and changed it, because the Ents could have come through and annihilated the orcs in the open field, potentially, but even still... Um, the orcs, w- they wouldn't have gotten there, uh, because, again, because of the timing, and when Merry and Pippin arrive in Fangorn, and when Entmoot is finished, and everything else, again, if that had ha- if they'd invaded in force, if that army had marched out five days sooner, then, uh, uh, then the, the, uh, the Ents might have been in time to sweep Rohan clean of the orcs after the fact, but Aedaros almost certainly would have fallen, Theoden and Amir would be dead, and uh, and you know you have no right of the Rohirrim to Minas Tirith thereafter. So um, this was a huge screw up by Saruman. Now, what does this show us? What do we learn from this? Um, oh, great! Arthur has told me that the website is back up. Excellent, excellent. So again, if you want to go, if you want to chat amongst yourselves, go to the Unfinished Tales page, which is now available, uh, and you can access the chat window. Okay, so. Saruman proves himself to be a lousy general. Um, And you'll notice how he is thinking here. This is especially interesting because it comes right after the passage which is talking about what Grima is up to. um, And how Grima is trying to neutralize or um, set against each other or anyway, and be basically his problems Theodred and, and Aemir, right? If he can get rid of Theodred and Aemir, then he's pretty much got the country in his hand. Um, with how he's got um, how he's got Theoden, um, uh, uh you know, in hand. So, sort of knowing this, thinking this way, he's not thinking. He Saruman here isn't thinking like a general. Um, he is thinking like a counselor. He's thinking like a schemer, 
right? We've got to get rid of Theodred. So he has his his uh, his his leader, his captain in the field. You know, throw everything away to go after Theodred. And once Theodred is done, he just sort of retires. He's like, okay, we executed Theodred. Our 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 work here is done. And it was obviously, from a strategic standpoint, a catastrophic mistake on Saruman's part uh, to 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 play it that way. So, what conclusion do we draw from this? I don't think the moral of the story here is it shows that like Saruman actually was pretty dumb, or um, you know he was just an incompetent military commander. It does show us that he was an incompetent military commander, but I don't think that that's it. I think that sort of what this shows is that. It's the way that he is thinking. He's not suited to be a military uh, leader. Um, and he's not the only one. You think about sort of the way that this works. This is sort of part of... I, I see this, anyway, as being part of a kind of a bigger theme um, of uh, really a very large theme that we see in Tolkien's works, which is the way that good guys tend to operate versus the way that bad guys tend to operate. That really kind of one of the things which defines who's a good guy and who's a bad guy in Tolkien is their attitude towards others, right? We were looking at Saruman, you know, his pride, yes, but also his envy. Um, He doesn't want any peers. He does not want a colleague, right? He will not come down and help Gandalf, even when he's got no other future. Right, even when he uh, really, you know, he doesn't have a plan. Well, what plan is he on? Plan C, Plan D. By this point, uh, you know, thinking back to the hunt for the ring. But anyway, um, he, he, you know, when uh, the Ents have sacked Isengard and his army has been destroyed, um, and he is confronting Gandalf, uh, you know, on the steps of Orthanc there at the end of Book Three of the Lord of the Rings, he has no good options. Gandalf gives him a chance, and a fair chance, as he says, Gandalf says, but he won't take it. He will not work with anybody else. He will only command. And that's how the bad guys work. They will not work together. They can have underlings whom they can command. Remember again from the Hunt for the Ring, why are the Nazgul the the best of Sauron's servants? Not just the most powerful, but the best? Because they're the ones that he can absolutely control. And, uh, uh, and he doesn't have to, um, you know, he, he doesn't have to worry about them getting uppity and disobeying him or turning against him or anything. He can have absolute obedience from the ringwraiths, and that's what makes them most useful to him. Um, Saruman treats his people like that. We see, of course, how he treats Wormtongue, uh, uh, you know, when, when, when they're together. Um, but we can see even with his captain here, he, he's not working together with somebody, right? He's not, he's not, Saruman's not part of a team, right? He has given a direct order, which is a, a sort of a short-sighted order, because Saruman is not a military leader. So he's given him what is really not exactly a military objective. And the guy, his captain, um, has, uh, has followed it and then just does nothing because he has no initiative because he's been given no initiative. Where, whereas on the other hand, you know, you have, you know, the good guys, you've got fellowship, right? You've got people working together. Gandalf has Aragorn, right? Um, and, and, you know, so he has, uh, you know, you think about how um, Gandalf doesn't go out to the battle, right? Um, 
that was the moment I talked about this a little bit, not quite as much as I wanted to actually, um, when we were doing the Return of the King class. The moment when Gandalf not just turns back from the confrontation with the Witch King at the gates of uh, Minas Tirith, and that seems like a big deal, though it's of course kind of anticlimactic when it happens, right? The confrontation between Gandalf and the Witch King, there are some against whom I have not been measured, and here it is, right? This is what we've been waiting for, and then they just go their separate ways, right? And it doesn't happen. Um, not just that, but of course, when he's done with Denethor, and he's rescued Faramir, uh, uh, and he comes back and brings him to the Houses of the Healing, and then he has that moment where he looks out from the walls, you know, the day is still young. There's still plenty of opportunity for Gandalf to go out and mix it up on the battlefield, but he doesn't. He won't, right? He says, no, he says, my, my place is here in the House of the Healing. I shall have yet other charges soon. So he's going to stay in the Houses of Healing, and he's going to, basically, he's going to play a role. It's an important role, and it's a role that he sees that nobody else can play, right? Um, I think the implication is that Eowyn would have died had, had Gandalf not stayed, had Gandalf not been there. Um, and kept her and Faramir alive um, uh, long enough for Aragorn to get there. Um, so, anyway, I, 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 but again, that's exactly what Saruman's not willing to do. He's the boss, right? He wants to be the boss. He wants to be the center of everything. Um, he wants to be like Sauron is, right? In command of everything. And obviously, he's not that good, but he's... Um, but, but again, you know, we see, you know... It, would Gandalf be particularly good at military strategy? I don't know. We don't have any actual real reason to think that. Um, but um, but that's really um, what I think we can see. You know, when we look at the difference between Gandalf and how he sees his role in things, right, and what and how he relates to other people. Um, he values what they do, right? He's thinking not of himself. He's not trying to sort of keep them down and elevate himself. Again, that's a that's a that's an envy thing, right? Um, but rather, he seeks to build them up and to inspire them and move them to play their part and to do their thing. And he will play his part. Um, so um, anyway, that's um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, good. Steve says we see uh, also. Um, Steve Holly makes a really good point. Um, Steve, I know I can always rely on you uh, to make uh, good observations when I talk about you know m- military experience, of which I have none either. But of course, Steve does, and I always appreciate your comments on these things. Steve, uh, Steve talks about chateau generalship, um, a pretty scathing indictment from the from the ranks in World War One of leaders who led from the rear with no connection of reality at the front. Um, yeah, and of course, again, that's a, that, that of course we see is another big difference between Gandalf and Saruman, um, and between Gandalf and Sauron. Of course, you'll remember the passages in the Return of the King um, when Denethor is commenting on that, <clears throat> about how he sort of, Denethor makes a kind of a wry comment at his own expense about how he um, he leads from the rear. Um, the Witch King is leading from the rear and pushing his soldiers on in the attack and not coming forward himself, initially, um, in the initial stages of the attack. Denethor sort of 
Again, he makes a fairly sardonic comment about how he's doing the same thing, sacrificing even his sons, and then uh, when uh, Gandalf says, one has come to the battlefield, whom I feared, he's referring to the Witch King, and Pippin loses his head and speaks up and says, not the Dark Lord, right? like Sauron has come himself to the battlefield, and Denethor laughs at him. No, 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 Sauron's not going to do that. right? He leads from the rear also. Um, why? Because he's preserving himself, right? He's not gonna. He's not gonna put himself at risk, and the implication is that he would be at risk. But anyway, Saruman's not gonna do that either. Gandalf does do that, right? Gandalf does um, actually do things himself and put himself in harm's way for the sake of other people, and you know, for the sake of of accomplishing what needs to be accomplished. So. Um, so again, I think we can see we can see numerous differences here, but again, also numerous reasons why Saruman is losing here. You know, in the end, it contributes to his downfall, and that too is another major thing that we see a pattern that we can see again and again in Tolkien stories. Um, the the those sort of tendencies that make evil people evil that that you know evil turns in upon itself evil undoes itself down to the very destruction of the ring at the hands of Gollum in the grip of the ring um, we see that you know the 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 power the desire to dominate uh, and uh, you know the 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 evil desires of the evil characters almost always prove their un- own undoing, even if they don't literally, like Ungoliant does, devour themselves. Um, yeah, Charlie says, to be fair, Sauron has been killed in battle once already. Yes, true enough, exactly. See, I mean, who would want to do that twice? Right, so, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, okay, um... Let me move. There's a lot of things I want to talk about tonight, so let me let me move ahead here. Two other things. Two other, so th- those th- 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 those complete my Saruman comments uh, from the battles of the Fords of Ice, and two other things I wanted to touch on. Um, one briefly, um, one thing that he expands on a little bit from the Lord of the Rings, which is Theoden's condition at the hands of Grima. This occurred early in the year thirty fourteen when Theoden was sixty six. His malady may thus have been due to natural causes, though the Rohirrim commonly lived till near or beyond their eightieth year. But it may well have been induced or increased by subtle poisons administered by Grima. In any case, Theoden's sense of weakness and dependence on Grima was largely due to the cunning and skill of this evil counselor's suggestions. It was his policy to bring his chief opponents into discredit with Theoden, and if possible to get rid of them. It, pro- it proved impossible to set them at odds with one another. Theoden, before his sickness, had been much loved by all his kin and people, and the loyalty of Theodred and Aemir remained steadfast, even in his apparent dotage. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Um, sorry, I was just looking at... Okay, I said I was done with Saruman, but Tama, I will read your comment, because it's... Uh, it's a, it's a, <laughs> Arthur referring to the death of Sauron says he he's got nine more fingers. Uh, what's he worried about anyway? Um, Tom says if envy is Saruman's besetting sin, that makes Saruman's remarks to Gandalf that if they joined Sauron, they could work together to undermine him and come to use the ring seem a revelation of his character. Who is this we? Gandalf rightly asks. We know it doesn't work that way, right? Exactly, and you know, uh, Tom, the 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 error that Gandalf catches him out on, right? Only one hand can wield the one, right? Um, 
Gandalf, you know, says, "Look, what you are saying, not only is." contrary to everything else that you, you know, nobody who, who makes the kind of arguments that you've been making, nobody who advocates the kind of course that you've been advocating actually is interested in that kind of teamwork, right? So I already disbelieve this, but you've totally given it away when you're going to try to pretend like we're going to share the one ring. Um, it's totally illogical and you've absolutely exposed yourself. Um, so yes, Tom, I, again, see, you see how that concept just kind of works backwards through all of those other quotations and sort of makes them fit in. This, by the way, um, if I could just pause for a second here, is one of the things that I think we can see happening in most of this later material here in Unfinished Tales. Um, it's not just about Tolkien adding more details or answering questions that have come up. Those things are clearly part of it. Um, it's not just Tolkien you know, sort of indulging himself, though I think that's part of it too, um, in, uh, in in sort of telling stories he hadn't told or giving details of, you know, sharing details of things that he had worked out that people seem to have questions about, whether it's, um, you know, how the Ringwraiths found the Shire or who exactly was the squint-eyed Southerner. However, I think in, in a larger sense, Tom, thinking about, again, that example that you were just giving... Um, one of the things that we can see is sort of Tolkien reflecting on what he's written and um, kind of crystallizing some of this stuff and really shining a kind of light upon it which really shows it up in a different way. Sometimes it can be, it can have a, rad- a, a transforming effect. I think the Isildur story um, is, is an example of that, where what we see, the light that we get upon Isildur's character in the disaster of the Gladden Fields really changes how we should... I mean, if we keep that story in mind as we read through The Lord of the Rings, our impressions of an understanding of Isildur are really quite different. Um, But there are other places where that transformation is less severe. Um, And I think that that's... I think that that's really fascinating. And again, as I've said before, I think that there are numerous places here in these later essays and stories where we can see Tolkien doing really careful reading of his own text. Um, you know, that that's something that he clearly um, that he clearly invests in a lot. That's how he approaches um, this whole project in these stories. Um but, uh, but okay, so anyway, thinking about that, Theoden's condition. Um, this is another of these things that we see here um, uh, that um, where he is inviting us to look at this a little bit differently. Arthur, I had exactly that same, um, that same reaction. Poisons, right? That, to me, is sort of the new thing here. Um, it, if anyone remembers something, I don't which is possible, I often forget things, tell me. But I don't recall any reference of anything like this. That Theoden's condition was sort of a purely psychological... It's not even obvious. I mean, there's there's several places in Tolkien where it's not clear to what extent magic is happening, right? Thinking of Galadriel's words to Sam and Frodo about magic and what do hobbits mean by that word, um, where something that we might call magic is occurring... Um, you know, it's unclear. And I, although I always found and still find the Peter Jackson film Exorcism of Saruman version of the healing of Theoden to be slightly comical and overdone, 
Nevertheless, um, I can understand why they went there. Because what's there in the book is really would be really hard, especially hard, I think, um, to put on the screen. Because it is really, really ambivalent, right? It's hard. It, it's, 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 it's unclear. When Gandalf heals him, is he performing magic? It's, it's you know, I, I kind of, I think. Um, anyway, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. Um, here, he's going back, and now he's suggesting, he's doing something which it doesn't generally do. And that is, give a sort of mechanical explanation. Um, that is to say, he, in, he looks back and he doesn't... Um, one could almost call it explaining away what Grima did, right? Um, you know, it, it, again, I'm you know, not trying to guess what was in Tolkien's head here, but um, if we were in uncertainty, did was Grima doing something magical? Was he just a really cunning talker? Had he just, you know, what, was there some kind of like semi-hypnosis thing? Was he just, you know, I mean. He deceived him, yeah, but I mean, it seemed to be a physical thing. What's go- How do we understand this? Well, he's given us, he's kind of thrown us a line here um, and says, hey, you know, um, subtle poisons, right? That there was a physical means to it. There is still, you know, the question of his will exerted over Theoden's and his sort of, you know, caging and ensnaring of Theoden's will by his own cunning. That's still present, right? We're not removing that. Um, But if we found the situation hard to understand, hard to visualize, hard to to really put our finger on what precisely Wormtongue was doing to Theoden, um, we've got a little help if we want it, right? Um, So you know, and I—it's a fascinating move. This is not the kind of move I think that we see very often um, in these later stories. But, um, but that I found particularly, particularly interesting. Um, even the possibility that he raises that his malady may thus have been due to natural causes. Um, so we have basically three options here that we can. You know, which none of which has been definitively asserted. Um, we can either choose to believe that Grima simply exerted his will over Theoden's, and in some sense ensnared his will by by a a kind of magical f- uh, force which is like to and probably derived from or derivative of, in any case, Saruman's uh, the power of Saruman's voice. Right, um, you know, Grima has a kind of an echo of Saruman's voice, and the 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 and exerting a power that's like the power that Saruman can exert over the hearts of people. So that's one way we can understand that. Um, if if it if we want to understand it as him actually administering physical poisons to debilitate him and weaken his mind, and then to confuse and to deceive him, um, you know, by his cunning, that's the other option. And the third option is simply that he actually was sick, that that his malady had natural causes, which Grima simply took advantage of, 
right? And that the the debilitation which was brought about by his natural causes um, provided the opportunity for Grima to confuse and confound and and uh, and deceive him. Um, and with any one of those three options, Gandalf's arrival and healing um, can easily fit, right? If either of the latter two, that is, either if it's a natural, uh, a malady of natural causes, or if there are subtle poisons involved, we would have Gandalf performing an actual, a physical healing upon Theoden, which is consistent with the language of the text. You know, uh, uh, there's all that, that talk about leechcraft, right? Um, and Gandalf's power of healing, um, consistent with what we see there. Um, if it's not, if he is neither has a natural malady nor has been poisoned, um, but it's this purely sort of spiritual oppression that Grima is working upon him, then, you know, Gandalf bringing the light in um, is the easier to understand in that way. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, I don't... Um, but again, it's it's fascinating. We're not We're not being told, like, okay, here's what was really going on, right? But it's suggested, it's kind of thrown out there. Um, and I think the non-definitive nature of this passage is to me one of the things that's most uh, um, that's most uh, that's what most fascinating. Um, yes, as uh, Alyssa is pointing out, a couple other people have mentioned Sarah uh, Martin has mentioned that at the same thing too, uh, at almost the same time. Um, the word poison is used, but only metaphorically. Do you think Wormtongue only had poison for Theoden's ears? Um, uh, uh, Gandalf says to Amir in the Houses of Healing, right? Um, but it's it's poison for the ears, and presumably not uh, in the Macbeth sense um, of literally pouring poison into the porches of anybody's ears. Um, uh, yeah, so it, it, the it, the poisoning and the healing could both be metaphorical, or at least both be understood sort of spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, um, rather than uh, physically. But, um, oh, Don, great question. Don says, are we to connect the worm in worm tongue uh, with dragons? Yes, absolutely. Um, I went around for many years, I mean, I, from my, when I, I, read, I first read The Lord of the Rings when I was like eight or nine years old, and for years, I understood worm tongue. I mean, I never thought about it all that much, but looking back on it, I, I, I can recall the mental image that I had from that, because I had no idea that dragons were called worms. Um, uh, in, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think of um, those, those references in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader about how Eustace had read none of the right books, right? Well, except for the Chronicles of Narnia and Tolkien, I had read none of the right books either, so I didn't know what a worm was uh, in that sense. I know, you know, it, 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 yeah, I know it's referenced like, you know, uh, Bilbo calls Smaug a worm in The Hobbit, but I was obviously not reading closely enough or thinking about it. But I just, um, um, I just thought it was, it meant like an earthworm, basically. Um, which is a disgusting physical image that if he has like a tongue is like a worm, um, and the word is used in something like that sense, right? I think that I, I thought of it only in like the earthworm sense um, because uh, he, when Gandalf is insulting him, you know, he says that uh, you know a worm you have become, um, but uh, anyhow. Um, Oh, sorry, did I say Macbeth? Guys, I meant Hamlet. Yeah, thank you. Both Charlie and Nancy have 
corrected me. I apologize. <laughs> I need to get more sleep. Yes, Hamlet is, of course, what I was thinking of. Um, anyway, yes, yes, yes. The fact is that worm tongue does mean dragons, like the tongue of dragons, which is fame, which are dragons, um, which are famously uh, silver-tongued and deceptive. Um, it is a testimony to the power of his speech, the power and fluency and deceptiveness uh, of his speech. In that sense, he is worm tongue, um, and this is why the word is not simply an insult. Again, like, I, I, I was sort of, you know, I, I, I took that term to be simply a term of abuse uh, when I first understood it when I was a kid. It's not just a term of abuse. It's a term of, I mean, there's still some abuse there, um, but there is a kind of backhanded compliment to it, right? Um, but anyway, um, so, um, yeah, ex- you know, exactly like Glaurung. Um So, um... So yes, that's that's uh, that is de- definitely the sense of it. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, and Faye, I agree that uh, the idea of Grima's having some kind of primary world magic or secondary world, med- but anyway, within his primary world, right? Um, uh, that is to have actual. Uh, some actual potency to his will in this way um, uh, does I mean that does seem relevant it does seem possible um, you know that he is under Sarum and wanting the dominion of things and wills as face says I agree um, but uh, um, so yeah I mean it's the line between what is magical and what is not magical is so fuzzy so often in Tolkien um, that I think it's uh it's tricky, but um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Kay says, "Is Grima to Saruman what Saruman is to Sauron, and Sauron is to Morgoth?" Kay, yes. And by the way, Kay, welcome back. I haven't seen you in forever. I know you've been busy. Uh, I'm glad you're able to join us. Um, but anyway, um, I. Certainly in the sense of emulation, right? Certainly in the sense of, um, you know, the, 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 the lesser following the greater. Um, though, of course, in one sense, Saruman is not necessarily that much lower than Sauron. And we'll get into that next time. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Cam, I'm a little... I'm, I'm hesitating a bit about a straightforward sort of analogy there because there are many ways you could take it in which it's not true, of course. I mean, Saruman was certainly not relating himself to Sauron in the way that, you know, that Grima was relating himself to Saruman. And yet you could say, um, you could say that there is a, 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 a parallel in the sense of the lesser, less powerful uh, one who is trying to do the things that the greater one is doing, um, and also ultimately kind of deceiving himself, too. Um, Yeah, Annie says, Grima is much more faithful where Saruman was using Sauron as a means to an end, perhaps. Um, 
Well, the the bad guys are generally, by definition, using each other as a means to an end. But you're right that there is um, faithful service of Grima to Saruman, as there was faithful service of Sauron to Morgoth. Um, remember the reference in the Silmarillion to how he was only less evil than Morgoth in that he for long uh, for for for, um, for long served another right, um, but um, but again that that relationship certainly doesn't work between Saruman and Sauron in that same way, um, but uh, but there certainly are some similarities. I mean, there are definitely things that you can kind of uh, you can kind of tease out there. Um, all right, one last thing, and this is very short. Um, they stooped then to lift the body and found that Theodred still breathed but he lived only long enough to speak his last words let me lie here to keep the fords till Eamir comes night fell a harsh horn sounded and then all was silent the attack on the west bank ceased and the enemy there faded away into the dark the Rohirrim held the fords of Isen but their losses were heavy not least in horses the king's son was dead and they were leaderless and they did not know what might yet befall. I just wanted to um, uh, to uh, just read this briefly. I had made reference earlier uh, in last class to the fact that you know we so seldom within the Lord of the Rings itself do we see any kind of you know sort of dispassionate attention to tactical maneuverings uh in a battle situation um and his emphasis you know the the emphasis of you know we're looking even at sort of the differences in prose style in his description of the um you know the ebbing and flowing of the battles of the fords of Isen compared to the descriptions that we get excuse me of the battle of Helm's Deep and of the battle of Pelennor Field um and even of the the uh even of the battle of five armies in the hobbit but here, of course, we get a taste of that tone that we're more familiar with, um, uh, even of the uh, um, even of that paratactic style that I was talking about. The Rohirrim held the fords of Isen, but their losses were heavy, not least in horses. The king's son was dead, and they were leaderless and did not know what might yet befall. Um, but and and and. That again, it's just a little taste of it, right? It's not like the charge of Theoden onto the Battle of Pelennor Field, but um, this is uh, certainly a moment in which we uh, we, we sort of see even. In, you know, I mean, this is still essentially rough draft that Tolkien is writing here. This is far from a polished, completed narrative, um, but yet even here we can see. Uh, you know, sort of his his ear for the for this tone, which he's so good at uh, coming out. And I just like you know, Theodred's last words, and then the, that's the simple you know the 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 the, the, the sort of the rhetorical power of Tolkien's short simple sentences. Night fell in the middle there, and then the image, a harsh horn sounded, and then all was silent. So good, man. That's just fantastic. Um, so um yeah good carolyn just pointing out the same thing about the uh the great tolkien short sentence there in the middle absolutely um exactly brian just like and it stank precisely um though of course here the effect is 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 very different right night fell um Ah, oh, it's just great. And I, I also, I, for similar reasons, I like the description of Grimbold fighting his way up to Theodra's side. 
just too late. Um, very good. Uh, but anyway, so I, 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 even in this kind of a place where he is interested in doing the other thing, that is where the story is interested in telling us in this much more um, detached, um, hypotactic way about what happened in the battle and everything, um, he, st- we, he still has these moments. Okay. Um, uh, ooh, Faye, great observation. We'll end with Faye's observation here. Theodred's Thre- last words, and then the note about it, uh, then, then the note about the bare hill. It needed no guard. Uh, it is almost like now comes the night, but with hope. Yeah, it's kind of like day will come again, right? Um, yeah, there is a kind of day will come again, I think, uh, about this. Um, okay, but um, we were talking about two chapters tonight, uh, theoretically, the Druidine and uh, the Astari, um, and I promised to get, to get to at least one of them uh, tonight, in fact. Uh, so let's do that. Um, let's talk about Droogs. I love the Droogs. And it seems pretty clear that Tolkien did too. Um, the first thing I want to say, actually, even before we read this passage... The first thing that I want to emphasize here is that this is another example, again, when you look chronologically at Tolkien's composition of this stuff, this is clearly another example of an idea, a concept which has emerged in the process of the writing of The Lord of the Rings, which Tolkien then really likes and really sort of seizes onto. The biggest example of this, of course, as we've talked about before, is Galadriel, who doesn't exist before The Lord of the Rings, but becomes a favorite um, uh, once The Lord of the Rings comes in. Um, Khan Buri Khan is the beginning, right? So don't, again, keep the chronology straight. When you're reading the stuff about the Druidine, don't be thinking, ah, this is where Khan Buri Khan comes from. No, no, no. Khan Buri Khan is the original. Um, Notice how I'm trying to do his name, which I find very difficult, but I've been practicing. Um, Khan Buri Khan is the original, and the essay of the Druidine is based on him. Um, so, uh, uh, so anyway, uh, it's it's um, and and again, this so this is uh, this is another example. If you think about Han Khan and what we see of him um, in the Return of the King, right? I mean, there are a bunch of things that we get from him in almost every element that we see in his description, that we learn about him during the course of his interaction with Thaed and Amir, um, that we hear about him from Elfhelm. Almost every reference. Uh, to the wild men and to Khan Buri Khan himself is in, is integrated into uh, this essay. We see these things being developed further uh, uh, in and uh, and and made a good deal more of. Yana, I know. Well, I Yana, I think about it the other way around. Yana says I need to learn Dutch, and then it would be much easier to say uh, to say his name. Yana, I, I think about it the other way around. That by practicing saying Khanbury Khan's name, um, I shall be the more readily prepared to learn Dutch when the time comes. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Um, now, yes, K, you're right, and Hebrew also. Yes. Um, no, there are a bunch of languages that have uh, that have that. Though the problem I have is not with the unvoiced version, you know, with just the, you know, I can do that. Um, but it's the voiced version, which I think is what the gh is supposed to be. Um, it's not the sound, but the sound. That's the that's the thing. I'm just like whoa. Um, 
I remember the first time I almost injured myself the very first time I tried to make that continental sound. I was because re- I was I was reading the appendices uh, of Lord of the Rings, and I was like, like a voiced backspirant, and I'm like, okay, the backspirant I knew was, but um, but <laughs> but anyways, I'm like voiced. Yeah, you can do that voice anyway. Um, it's um, it's. It's a fun challenge. Well, let's get to the way we have. So, with uh, with with Han Burikhan as the uh, as the the sort of the icon of the Druidine, and then we get now the picture being the 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 picture being filled in. Tom, that's a good way to think about it. Th- think about humming while making the sound. Yeah, that that I hadn't thought about it, Tom. But that is kind of what I what I'm doing. Okay, the strangest of all the customs of the folk of Haleth was the presence among them of people of a wholly different kind, the like of which neither the Eldar and Beleriand nor the other Atani had ever seen before. They were not many, a few hundreds maybe, living apart in families or small tribes, but in friendship as members of the same community. The folk of Haleth called them by the name Drug, that being a word of their own language. To the eyes of elves and other men they were unlovely in looks. They were stumpy, some four feet high, but very broad, with heavy buttocks and thick, short, and short, thick legs. Their wide faces had deep-set eyes and with heavy brows and flat noses, and grew no hair below their eyebrows, except in a few men who were proud of the distinction. Khan Khan, of course, has a beard. Um, a small tail of black hair in the midst of the chin. Their features were unusually impassive, the most mobile being their wide mouths, and the movement of their wary eyes could not be observed, saved from close at hand, for they were so black that the pupils could not be distinguished, but in anger they glowed red. Creepy. Their voices were deep and guttural, but their laughter was a surprise. It was rich and rolling, and set all who heard it, elves or men, laughing too, for its pure merriment, untainted by scorn or malice. In peace they often laughed at work or play when other men might sing. But they could be relentless enemies, and when once aroused, their red wrath was slow to cool, though it showed no sign save the light in their eyes, for they fought in silence and did not exult in victory, not even over orcs, the only creatures for whom their hatred was implacable. Okay. Um, Of all of this... There's, I would say, there seems to be one element which seems to be an improvement upon the Lord of the Rings description of the Wild Men. And that is, um, <laughs> Kay says, minus the chin tail, this sounds like my infant son in some moods. Uh, yes, uh, though I wish my infant sons had been this impassable, frankly. Uh, but anyway, um, that whole thing about like standing perfectly still for a really long time, what I wouldn't have given for that. But anyhow, um, uh, the one thing which seems, in all of this, which seems to me as actively inconsistent um, with the description in The Lord of the Rings, Christopher Tolkien quotes it but doesn't comment on it at all. I think because it's not really very consistent, and that's the laughter. Hanbury Han's uh, 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 laughter is commented on, um, but it doesn't sound like that, right? Uh, it, he makes this gurgling noise in his throat, and Mary's like, Mary doesn't even know what it is at first, then he realizes, oh, he's laughing, right? So the fact that his laughter was strange um, uh, is, is, uh, is one thing, right? Um, 
but then to say, the way that he takes the strangeness of the sound of his laughter and pushes it in this new and I think really fascinating ways the rich and rolling laughter that set all who heard it elves or men laughing too for its pure merriment um, if it sets elves and men laughing who hear it I can't imagine it wouldn't set a hobbit laughing who heard it. And it definitely didn't have that impact on Mary. Um, but again, I think that this um, this is something that is one of the ways, one of a couple ways, um, very few, I think, in this in, in the instance of the Druidine, um, but one of the ways in which he's pushing the idea forward a little bit further, um, where he is investing that previous detail from the Lord of the Rings, the laughter, um, with a different kind of impact um, that it doesn't initially have. Um, which is fine. I think that's cool. Um, but um, uh, the relationship with orcs um, is, uh, is fascinating. We don't have time right now uh, to talk about orcs and their origins it is an extremely thorny subject. Of course, the published Silmarillion says they're derived from elves, but as Christopher notes uh, in his commentary on this passage, there was a lot of... Um, Tolkien went back and forth a lot on that. He had a lot of different ideas that he suggested at different times about where the orcs came from. Um, and um, uh, if ever we... If ever we do in the Mythgard Academy, if ever we do a class on Morgoth's ring, we'll talk about it then. And I promise we'll come back to this passage uh, when we uh, when we when we get there. Um, but um, but certainly the suggestion of a kinship between the orcs and the droogs uh, is a fascinating idea. Um, and even there, I just sort of think about what that the possibility of that connection suggests, you know, the way in which the the Druidine, in which the wild men of the woods, what a minor place they fill in the world of Middle-earth as it's revealed in the Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, they I mean, it's not, they play an important role in the story, but but they're a really minor character, right? Um, and the idea that he's going to go back and invest that little tiny piece of his whole sub-creation into such a big to, to make them the source of the orcs that's a that's a really big deal um to anyway um yeah yeah um I, so i think again it's 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 a fascinating instance of, of a way in which through these later essays we can see tolkien going back and and, and investing um these things with much more sort of stature than they uh than they had um at at other points. Um, a couple comments you guys are making. Several of you have pointed out sort of similarities, uh, uh, apparent similarities between the Droogs um, and at least, as Carolyn says, the modern view of uh, Neanderthals. Um, yes, there, I mean, there does seem to be a kind of similarity. They certainly look as if they were uh, sort of primitive, we would use that word in some sense or other. Um, Arthur says, I'm intrigued that Eru makes modern evolved men and also creates what appears to be Neolithic men simultaneously. Um, yes, the changes among, uh, or rather within, the physical and racial changes within the race, uh, the, the species 
of humans uh, in Tolkien's world is a really interesting kind of uh, subject. And I want to come back to that, actually, in a kind of a roundabout um, in a kind of a roundabout fashion. Um, uh, let's um, compare this, of course, with another description. They are, or were, a little people, about half our height and smaller than the bearded dwarves. Hobbits have no beards. There is little or no magic about them, except the ordinary everyday sort, which helps them to disappear quietly and quickly when large stupid folk like you and me come blundering along, making a noise like elephants which they can hear a mile off. They are inclined to be fat in the stomach, they dress in bright colors, chiefly green and yellow, wear no shoes, because their feet grow natural leathery soles, and thick warm brown hair like the stuff on their heads, which is curly, have long clever brown fingers, good-natured faces, and laugh deep fruity laughs, especially after dinner, which they have twice a day when they can get it. Now you know enough to go on with. Now, I am not, of course, suggesting that droogs are hobbits. I am not suggesting no identity between the two of them. The differences between them are quite clear. However, what is kind of interesting to me is the similarity in the description here, um, that it's it's impossible for me not to think of this passage when I'm reading that passage describing the droogs. Um, there is a... Hobbits are similar to the droogs, in one sense, in that they seem to be some kind of mannish subspecies, and the ways in the ways in which they differ are intriguingly parallel, even though quite different from themselves. That is, they're both short, for one thing. Okay, that's an obvious similarity. Um, they are follicularly distinguished from other human beings. Uh, hobbits, because they have exceptionally furry feet, and uh, uh, and droogs because they have no hair south of their eyebrows, right? Um, both of them have a hair distinguish, uh, dis- d- distinguishing. Um, okay. Uh, again, even the things that get emphasized, the, 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 their laughs, right? The, their shape, you know, the, the, the um, hobbits tend to be fat in the stomach, or they're just kind of pudgy, uh, instead of stocky and really broad and strong like the droogs. Um, but, you know, uh, I guess hobbits' laughs are fruitier, uh, and the droogs are more rolling. But again, the, the similarities in the, the, the details that are touched on are, to me, kind of fascinating. Um, and even just sort of as two different kind of parallel... Um, uh, two different parallel subspecies of humans, it's kind of fascinating to put them next to each other. Now, again, Tolkien is really clear. Um, you know, uh, Christopher Tolkien goes out of his way to emphasize that the Shire is a droog-free zone. My father was at pains to emphasize the radical difference between the Druidine and the Hobbits. They were of quite different physical shape and appearance. The Druidine were taller and of heavier and stronger build. Their facial features were unlovely, judged by general human standards, and while the head hair of the hobbits was abundant but close and curly, the Druidine had only sparse, lank hair on their heads and none at all on their legs and feet. No confusions here. They were at times merry and gay like hobbits, but they had a grimmer side to their nature and could be sardonic and ruthless, and they had or were credited with strange or magical powers. They were, moreover, a frugal people, eating sparingly, even in times of plenty, and drinking nothing but water. Very different from hobbits. In some ways they resembled rather the dwarves, in build and stature and endurance, in their skill in carving stone, in the grim side of their character, and in their strange powers. 
but the magic skills with which the dwarves were credited were quite different, and the dwarves were far grimmer and also long-lived, whereas the druidine were short-lived compared with other kinds of men. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah wonders if Drugs would be similarly resistant to the ring. Don't know, Sarah. I haven't the faintest idea. Um, if I'd had to guess, I'd say yes, but, we, you know, who knows. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating here um, is... Um, and they had, or were credited with, strange or magical powers. That is, Drugs are, in contrast to hobbits, of course, as Christopher Tolkien is suggesting. Well, uh, yeah, but so were hobbits, right? Uh, again, that's what what's what Tolkien said um, in The Hobbit. Um, there is little or no magic about them, except the ordinary everyday sort, which helps them to disappear quietly and quickly when large stupid folk like you and me come blundering along. Now, you'll rem- you may remember in the prologue to The Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien returns to this passage, or rather, he says something which seems to me to be a deliberate nod to this particular passage of The Hobbit, in saying that hobbits aren't magical, right? They just can, they're really, um, you know, stealthy and small, and so they can disappear. They they, uh, have increased the skill of disappearing quickly to a kind of professional skill. Um, Hobbits are not magical, he's insisted in the prologue, in the Concerning Hobbits, section uh, before the before the Fellowship of the Ring. But um, but that wasn't what he said in The Hobbit, right? In The Hobbit, the question is left open. They have little or no magic about them. Oh, except for the ordinary everyday sort. Right. What's the ordinary everyday sort of magic exactly? They do seem to have some kind of um, some kind of uh, some kind of magic, I think, it seems, to suggest. And again, Tolkien backs off from that. Um, but I think that that's a fascinating thing. Again, these two subspecies who are both physically different, whose hair patterns have changed, have become shorter, and uh, uh, and laugh a lot, though they've also grown apart in different ways. Again, I'm not saying hobbits and jugs are the same. What's fascinating is just the fact that we have here two different examples of men who were presumably, based upon the origin stories of the children of Iluvatar that we get in the Silmarillion material, presumably everybody is related to the same stock, right? You know, there's a particular geographical place where the second, uh, you know, children, the you know, the second comers of the children of Iluvatar awaken and spread out from there. Presumably, you know, uh, uh, the people of Hador and uh, the the, uh, the Drugs and the Hobbits and the Brelanders and the Dunlendings and the Easterlings and everybody else all came originally uh, from the same group. Um, you know, what happened? And and it was just looking at the so so this is why this is where to me the comparison you can see that Christopher Tolkien doesn't want anybody making any mistakes, and, and I can certainly believe him when he emphasizes um, that, uh, you know, when he says, my father was at pains to emphasize, right? Um, I can certainly understand why he would want to defend against any misapprehension that the two are the same, um, or like closely related, or, you know, close cousins or something like that. But rather, just the fact that this sort of thing happens, because we don't get any clear sense of how this happens, 
or why this happens. Um, one other passage I wanted to go back to, we didn't talk about it at the time. The dwindling of the Dunedain, this is at the very end of the last appendix of the uh, Disaster of the God and Fields. The dwindling of the Dunedain was not a normal tendency shared by peoples whose proper home was Middle-earth, but due to the loss of their ancient realm in the West, nearest of all mortal lands to the undying realm. The much later dwindling of hobbits must be due to a change in their state and way of life. They became a fugitive and secret people, driven as men, the big folk, became more and more numerous, usurping the more fertile and habitable lands, to refuge in forest or wilderness, a wandering and poor folk, forgetful of their arts, living a precarious life, absorbed in the search for food and fearful of being seen. Okay. Um... This has always been one of the elements of Tolkien's sub-creation that I personally have found least intuitive. Um, I have a hard time investing myself imaginatively in this. I don't understand it. I don't get it. Why exactly do hobbits... When did hobbits get short? How do hobbits get short? Because however you slice it, it's in a, it's in a really short brief, I should say, perhaps, time frame, right? Um, We're not talking about a slow evolution over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, We're talking about an evolutionarily short window of time here. Brief, excuse me. Window of time, I'll keep the short jokes to a minimum, in which um, the hobbits are dwindling in stature. The fact that um, and and notice how even this explanation, um, which and this is you know one of the most explicit explanations we ever get of this, and it's not much. Um, this explanation, to me, goes in a circle, right? How do they become short? Um, as a res- uh, due to a change in their state and way of life, they became a fugitive and secret people. Why? So okay, so becoming a fugitive and secret people made them get short, made them get small, made them diminish in stature. Why did they become secret and fugitive? Because the big folk became more and more numerous, usurping the more fertile and habitable lands. But wait, I thought they were big folk then, and they became little folk when they... I don't know. I don't know. Um, I... Now, again, I'm not trying to, like, poke holes in this or make fun of it. Um, and he never gives a mechanism. He never explains, you know, by what process this happens. Was there some kind of supernatural intervention? Um, is this something that some elf does? In other fairy stories, one could imagine this. Um, is this something that the Valar do? Is this, you know, part of the plan of Iluvatar? Presumably it is. I don't know. Um but we are never told about it. We never actually see that. See that no explanation of this is really given, and it's especially fascinating in the in this paragraph in the context of what he says in the first half of the paragraph. He talks about this. All begins with this is all in the uh, appendix on the linear measurements of Numenor. Remember about the the Ranga and all that stuff, um, and about how the men of Numenor got shorter. Um, you know, they were the tallest of all of the humans. 
uh, and but they 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 that not only did their li- their their lifespans shrink. Remember, um, remember Matt's chart uh, of the reigning and the you know the, the the lifespans and the reigns of the kings of Numenor, right? And how they were already shrinking in in in, in lifespan. They diminish in physical stature in Middle Earth as well, so that the you know the men of Gondor are still tall. They're not way taller than the people of of Rohan, um, whereas Elendil the tall was really tall. Um, but anyhow. Um, so they diminish. The hobbits diminish really fast. Now, when the Num- when the Numenorians diminish, we're told um, it's not a normal tendency shared by people whose proper home was Middle Earth. It is due to the loss of their ancient realm in the West. That is to say, their height correlated with their longitude, <laughs> right, with their westerliness. That is, their height was like their extended longevity, a gift of the Valar, or maybe like a side effect of the blessing of the Valar, in some sense. Um, So, tallness correlates with blessing from the Valar, um, and that's something you can see pretty consistently. I mean, it's something that um, you know, over the years, many of my students have observed. Notice how you can always tell the leader in uh, you know when you come to a new group of people uh, in Tolkien's world, you can usually pick out the captain or the king because he's the tallest. Amir is the tallest. Faramir is the tallest. Um, uh, you know, uh, even the kings of the elves are often taller. Um, but uh, um, Oh, yeah, you're right, Brianna. Hurin being the exception, absolutely. Um, but anyway, there's a very strong correlation between height and between physical stature and spiritual stature. But hobbits have always been a glaring exception to that rule, right? Um, and so again, that's another way in which like, I don't understand it physiologically. I don't quite understand it, you know, sort of symbolically either. Um, um, I uh, it's 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 never something that I've been that I've uh, I've really um, understood very fully. Um, a couple, uh, let's see, Thomas and uh, Chuck were both sort of talking about how um, you know maybe dwindling, um, the much later dwindling of hobbits. Maybe the dwindling is referring to their numbers or to their extent rather than to their height. You know, it's, it's possible. I mean, goodness knows they. they uh, you know, we are told that o- over time they're going they're going to dwindle in terms of how numerous they are, and certainly to the um, the amount of geography that they cover. But the whole context of this passage is about m- physical measurements and about height. Um, and again, the context which I haven't given you is it's just been explaining why hobbits are called halflings because they were more or less precisely half the height of a Numenorean. By Numenorean measures, they were half high. Um, and so that, that, that name Halfling was given them by the Numenorians, who knew of them um, way back at the beginning of the Third Age. Um, and that, although nobody in Gondor... You know, Pippin is the first, uh, is the first hobbit to be seen in Gondor, like, ever, um, you know, in the history of the South Kingdom. Um, yet, nevertheless... They've heard of the 
Perry and F. They know what a halfling is, um, and they ha- they, are, they already have a category for that. Um, so, um, uh, anyway, so again, it's in that context of talking about the height of hobbits that this paragraph comes in. So I, I do understand it as as referring to their diminishing size, which brings me to. Uh, an interesting point, which Sarah King has just brought up, and D. May was referring to earlier. A couple people have been uh, alluding to, and, I, and I've been delaying mentioning. Um, but I think it's really fascinating. There is, of course, a race of creatures in Tolkien's world which had been conceived initially as diminishing, as they sort of diminished in power and diminished in influence as also diminishing in physical stature, not just to, you know, three feet high, but to inches high, even centimeters high, and those are elves. Um, The diminishing of the elves was in the early conception, I'm talking Book of Lost Tales here, in the early conception was literal, because that was back before Tolkien decided to just rebel against the entire Victorian fairy tradition. That that tradition, that post-Renaissance tradition of, you know, teensy little, uh, you know, buttercup fairies and, and stuff. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the Arthur Conan Doyle, Tinkerbell kind of thing. Um, uh, the, that, that idea of fairies, the diminutive fairies, was initially something Tolkien kind of tried to sort of compromise with, or rather tried to incorporate into his own mythology. Um, he still was sort of seemed to be artistically interested in increasing the the stature and dignity of elves, um, not just to make them teensy and cute and silly, um, but to make them noble and tragic. So we have the tragic stories, you know, those, the, the Book of Lost Tales stories, the stories which become over time the Silmarillion stories, um, even the Turin story and all, you know, stuff that we've been reading earlier in, the, in this class. Um, he starts with those stories, but then eventually, at the end, talks about how the elves who remain in Middle-earth shrink. They physically diminish until they become the tiny little fairies that we're used to. So so basically saying, yes, yes, it's true. The only fairies that still exist in our world are the teensy ones that, you know, your nurse taught you about, uh, you know, in the late Victorian era. But elves weren't always that way. And this is the ancient history of the elves. That's that's what we get. That's that's where Tolkien begins. Later on, he finally just put his foot down and said, screw it, I'm A, not using the word fairy anymore, period, and B, I'm... Uh, uh, and certainly, he's not going to use... The, and not only was he using the word fairy, um, uh, he was using the word elfin, with an F, originally. He used it, not all the time, but frequently. Okay, no more elfin, no more fairies, it's just elves with a V, and he, this is why he invents a new adjective, elvish, instead of, instead of elfin, um, because, again, he didn't want the, those Victorian associations. Um, um, oh, Yana, the Arthur Conan Doyle thing is a reference to, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, was, it, it wasn't about him writing fairy stories, um, but about him claiming to see fairies. Um, and uh, to uh, release photographic evidence of fairies that he found. Is, uh, 
it's a thing about Arthur Conan Doyle. I don't even know all that much about it. Um, it's something actually I've been meaning to read about more because um, what I have read is pretty funny. Um, but anyway, he was associated with them because he was in his later life was making this case for like the actual existence of fairies and claimed to have photographic evidence of it. Um, it's uh, it's 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 pretty it's 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 pretty uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, uh, Charlie says it was made into a relatively recent movie. I didn't see that, Charlie, but yeah, yeah. Um, um, anyhow, okay. So, um, but anyway, the larger point I was making is that was the early part of Tolkien's mythology. The idea of the elves physically diminishing is removed from Tolkien's mythology, but then in the later portions of, in the, you know, in the later development of Tolkien's mythology, we still get diminishing races, races, but now it's humans, right? So now instead of humans being this stable or, in a sense, like, upwardly mobile race, um, as, of course, we all believe in the march of progress and humans are evolving and getting better and better and smarter and smarter all the time and the elves are diminishing and diminishing and becoming small and, and funny. Um, well, now, um, in Tolkien's world, we have the reverse happening, right? Elves remain great, and in some sense are even, uh, like, becoming greater. Like, you know, they're over there in the West with the gods, right? Um, with the Valar. Um, and humans are diminishing, and some of them are diminishing really fast. And we see more than one example, right? Getting back to Drugs, we've got... We, we see what happens with hobbits, we see what's happened with the Drugs, we see there are sort of several examples of humanity moving in this very different direction. Um, and again, it's not to say that, uh, you know, hobbits and droogs are examples of de-evolution, right? Of, 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 of sort of un-evolutionary regression or anything like that. But again, it's to me fascinating that that whole uh, sort of process gets, um, um, gets put sort of on its head. Um, and I think that that's, in the end, kind of, uh, kind of funny, actually. Sort of ironic reversal, um, but what becomes clear is that humans are pretty plastic, pretty various. I mean, the differences between the differences among the physical differences among the races of humans, even humans in the non-drug, non-hobbit category, um, are more extreme than we get among the elves. Um, it's, I mean, with the elves, it's like most of the elves don't have blonde hair, but this one family of elves do have blonde hair. That's like a major distinction among the different sort of families and species of elves. Um, the men have a, have a, a, have a very much, uh, have very much greater, um, delineations among them. Um, but, um, anyway, um, back to the, those powers of the droogs, uh, because I think that they're it's clear that although, um, as how oh, somebody and I've lost it now, it was a while back. Faye, maybe. Um, no, Nancy. Sorry, good. Nancy was uh, Nancy Fosberg was pointing this out. Um, but just as with the Hobbit, uh, with, with the Hobbits in the Hobbit description, he says, you know, they don't they have little or no magic except the ordinary everyday kind conceding the possibility of magic, but not making a big deal of it or sort of downplaying it. Um, so too we have, you know, the orc or were credited with, right? This sort of uncertainty, not really coming out and firmly saying they totally have magic powers, at least not in that initial description. But we do see several interesting things about them. 
Um, one of course is the uh, one thing of course is their power with uh, with their carvings with their stones and with those wonderful um, watch stones that we get the statues um, of them um, and the description of it just in that passage at the end uh, of the faithful stone is fascinating on several levels. I will speak when I have looked and thought longer, said Achan. I assume it's Achan with that same sound again. And he went hither and thither, scanning the ground, and Barach followed him. At length Achan led him to a thicket at the edge of the clearing in which the house stood. There the watchstone was, sitting on a dead orc, but its legs were all blackened and cracked, and one of its feet had split off and lay loose at its side. Achan looked grieved, but he said, Ah, well, he did what he could, and better that his legs should trample orc fire than mine. Then he sat down and unlaced his buskins, and Barak saw that under them there were bandages on his legs. Achan undid them. They are healing already, he said. I had kept vigil by my brother for two nights, and last night I slept. I awoke before morning came, and I was in pain, and found my legs blistered. Then I guessed what had happened. Alas, if some power passes from you to a thing you have made, then you must take a share in its hurts. If some power passes from you to a thing you have made, then you must take a share in its hurts. Okay. Um, this is really fascinating. Uh, you know, Neil, I know you were, you were emailing me about this, and I, I, I was thinking the same thing. Um, doesn't this sound an awful lot like Sauron and the Ring? And of course, Christopher Tolkien talks about that, the connection between Sauron and the Ring and Sauron and the foundations of Barad-dûr. Um, the way that when you allow some part of your power to go out of you and invest it into something else for, the, you know, for whatever purpose you do that, <clears throat> there is still that connection back to you. So much of Sauron's power was put into the Ring that he was permanently crippled by its destruction and could not be permanently crippled without, as so long as the, it could not be permanently destroyed so long as the ring survived. Roy and Arthur and Annie were all thinking the same thing too as I was reading that. Yeah. Um, so I think that this is, it's you know, on, on the one hand a complete sidelight, right? It has nothing really directly to do with Droogs. Uh, and instead, in one sense, this passage from this little uh, Druidine uh, folk story shows us um, uh, shows us something that I think gives us some more insight into how the Ring of Power works than almost anything directly said about the Ring of Power. Um, but I would also point to two other occasions in which we see similar but not exactly the same things. One is Turin's Black Sword. This passage wasn't in the Unfinished Tales version. This is part of the uh, the sort of the bit that he skips and draws our attention to the Silmarillion, you know, says, uh, read the Silmarillion, these pages of the Silmarillion, because it's basically the same. Um, and in particular here, I'm thinking of Beleg receiving the black sword from Thingol and Melian, and Melian warning him that part of the will of the smith, Aeol, is in that sword. We know that, um, that you know, Gurthang is a magic sword, um, and Melian suggests uh, you know, what she seems to point to is that what makes it a magic sword, and which also, by the way, would explain to some extent why it could talk at the end, um, is that part of the spirit, will, being of the smith Aeol, the dark elf, has gone into it. 
Ael the Dark Elf, who of course learned much about Smithcraft from the dwarves. Um, so, you know, does that mean that that's a dwarvish power? I mean, he has said, Tolkien said in that earlier description, that the power of the Jugs is very unlike the power of the dwarves. Um, but, um, but certainly the connection between the Drugs and the Watchstones is... Roy says it's much more literal. I agree, Roy. I'd also, I, I guess I'd say a little bit differently. It's much more personal, I think. Um, Sauron makes the Ring of Power in order to use that, to, to use the Ring of Power uh, as a kind of lever um, in order to gain su- supremacy over the Elven Rings and over the wielders of the Elven Rings. Um, the Drugs pour themselves into the Watchstones with self-sacrificial intention. Of course, as we see, there is, in a sense, uh, an unintended self-sacrificial result of Sauron pouring so much of himself into the Ring of Power, but it certainly wasn't intended uh, as a a self-sacrificial act on Sauron's part. It is, it seems, something of a self-sacrificial act on the part of the Drugs. Um, um, Anyway, so... Um, I, I think that we do see, we, we get a fascinating kind of glimpse here, but again, the, the way in which they exert their power um, seems to me also an important element in their, uh, an important reflection of their character, of their culture. Um, but of course, this is another one of those moments, like the things with Saruman we were talking about before, which I think when we, when we, when we look at this and we read stories like this, uh, like the... Um, uh, the 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 story of Achan and his statue, which go back and shine a new light on passages uh, in the Lord of the Rings. Of course, obviously, the one I'm thinking about uh, is uh, Mary here coming to Dunharrow. He was on a road the like of which he had never seen before, a great work of men's hands in years beyond the reach of song. Upwards it wound, coiling like a snake, boring its way across the sheer slope of rock. Steep as a stair, it looped backwards and forwards as it climbed. Up it horses could walk, and wains could be slowly hauled, but no enemy could come that way, except out of the air, if it was defended from above. At each turn of the road there were great standing stones that had been carved in the likeness of men, huge and clumsy-limbed, squatting cross-legged with their stumpy arms folded on flat bellies. Some in the wearing of the years had lost all features, save the dark holes of their eyes, that still stared sadly at passers-by. The riders hardly glanced at them. The men they called them, and heeded them little. No power or terror was left in them, but Mary gazed at them with wonder, and a feeling almost of pity, as they loomed up, loomed up mournfully in the dusk. Um, <clears throat> if we are to understand, as it seems we are to understand, at least this is how I take this stuff on the Druidine, um, if we're to understand that these are watchstones, Druidon watchstones, which have been set up, and again they seem to be. Mary recognizes, uh, you know, sees the similarity immediately to Han Han that you know it, it looks. This is clearly a statue of. These are statues of Drugs, and thus presumably watchstones. Um, Dunharrow was pretty freaking well defended. I mean, you know, 
uh, if it was defended from above, no enemy could come at it that way. It wouldn't even have to be defended from above. Just walk away, right? I mean, you've got uh, the statues at every turn in the road, right? You know, you've got this army of watchstones on that path. Forget about it, man. Nobody's getting up there. And presumably nobody's getting down either. Um, we also are told, of course, in the co- in the course of these essays, that um, in the course of the writings on the Druidine, it's not exactly an essay, um, that uh, the Druidine were unfriends, at the least, um, were enemies with the other men, the other Easterlings that were in this area, that is presumably with uh, the Oathbreakers back in the day, you know, back before they became ghosts. Um, those were exactly the kinds of men, the men out of the East who were under Sauron's sway, um, with whom the Druidine were said, the Druidine of the White Mountains were said to be at war. Um, and we know that the Paths of the Dead are a, you know, which which are now called the Paths of the Dead, and presumably prior to Isildur were not called the Paths of the Dead, because they weren't guarded by dead people yet, because those people were still alive. Back when the dead people were still alive, um, this pass was uh, a, a direct pass between where the Druidine apparently lived, I mean, if we are to uh, conclude anything from the from the the Pukul men statues, clearly this was a place of theirs, um, and they were not friendly with the men who live on the other side of that pass through the mountains or in the mountains. Um, so, uh, that <laughs> Tom says the paths of the not dead yet. Exactly. Um, so, so again, it, it notice how this is one of the things that I find most fun about this. As Tolkien is kind of rounding out things, as he's kind of filling up the corners, as I said in uh, my somewhat whimsical, though not quite so whimsical as I almost made it, title of my class tonight, um, uh, uh, we have him um, taking a story, taking a, a concept, an idea, a character um, from The Lord of the Rings, and telling us more, um, feeding us some, some, some just just a little bit extra to help us imaginatively fill in the time around this. We see the way that it works. He tends to, first, he fills it in, um, he fills, he, he fills it in sort of around them, right? That is, around them where they are. And then, you know, he projects outwards first, right? We get it, we get a wider picture of the people in their culture, and then he projects backwards in time, right? Backwards into the history, um, they're the first to cross the Anduin, their connection with the people of ha- with Haleth, and, of course, the way in which they were going to be reworked back into the Silmarillion. They're not in the Silmarillion. Why? Right? Because they hadn't been invented when that stuff was, was mostly written. He would have had to go back and rewrite a bunch of the Silmarillion stuff to include Droogs among all of those places where Droogs were supposed to be. And, of course, you recall, I hope that you noted, uh, Neil, I know that you did, the... Uh, the one particular uh, and most forceful intervention he was going to make into the Silmarillion, of, of Droogs into the Silmarillion tradition, Sador Hoppafoot from the Turin story was going to be a Droog. Christopher just drops that in one of the notes, right? That he knows that it was, you know, he, he, he knows that it was his father's intention to go back and re- retroactively make Sador, the, Sador Hoppafoot a Droog. Wow, that's a big change, actually. I'm not... I mean, I'm fascinated. I, you know, trying to th- trying to imagine how the Turin story would be different 
if one of the primary influences on his youth was a droog, uh, rather than the Sador that we get, is a fascinating pool of speculation based upon what we know of them here to try to take the characteristics of the droogs as we learn about them here and put that back into Turin's childhood. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, Nancy says it totally changes the meaning of his reaction when he's called a Woodwoes. Yeah, and not to mention that, Nancy, remember, Woodwoes is the name he takes for himself when he gets to the people of Haleth at the end. He calls himself Wild Man of the Woods. In other words, Woodwoes, right? That's his name. That's the, that's the you know, uh, you know he, he, he's called Turambar also, but he calls himself Woodwoes, right? So yeah, Nancy, it would be a, it would be a, you know, just a, Going back to his, uh, go, going back to his youth, um, yes, yes. Um, anyway, you know, my initial reaction. Well, it's hard to say because I can't really imagine how the Turin story would be different. I mean, it seems to me like Turin's character would almost have to be completely different—not completely different, but significantly different—if he were influenced by. Sador's pretty different from the Droogs in a bunch of ways. Um, and I don't know. I mean, one of the things that I really like about Sador is the way, you know, we talked, I talked about the, you know, the, the sort of the elegance of the story as we get it in, uh, in the Unfinished Tales version, you know, further put together and expanded uh, in the Children of Hurin version. Um, the, the, w- with the parallels of Sador at the beginning and Brondir at the end, you know, you got the limping guys and you know, and, and, and the way in which Sador serves as a kind of foil for Turin at the beginning, and, and Brondir is kind of his opposite at the end. I, the, the way that these things contribute to the overall shape of the story. Um, you know, and then with the Woodwoes thing, right? The, the, the thing with Cyrus, and then the thing with, um, you know, him taking the name Woodwoes at the end, right at the time when he meets one of the daughters of the children of Haleth, you know, running like a deer clad only in her hair. Again, so many lovely parallels, and it's, the structure is so elegant. Um, turning Sador into a Drew really changes a bunch of these things. Um, but, anyway, um, I won't... Uh, um, uh, I, I, I won't go into more of this. Um, right, see, Alyssa, exactly, I was thinking of the same thing. You know, we, how would, you know, Sador Drug would have lost one of his foot? Would he have lost it the way, you know, with stomping orc fire, the way that, uh, the way that Achan's watchstone did? Um, you know, his watchstone <laughs> stomped so much orc fire that his foot fell off, and, I mean... Yeah, that's, I mean, of course, Alyssa, I, I was thinking of, of the footless statue, too, when I was thinking about Drug Sador, but, but goodness, what a difference! What a difference between, you know, a Drug who has been so faithful and self-sacrificial that he has been personally maimed um, as a consequence of, um, of, uh, of, of his you know, faithful service and devotion compared to Sador Hopafoot, you know, who fled from his destiny and only ran to meet it faster and was, you know, uh, dismembered by his own incompetence. Um, anyway, I mean, it's it's very different. Very different. And I can't even wrap my head around it. So I'm going to stop trying. Um, but, uh, but anyway, I... I, uh, I but it's characteristic of something that we've seen in this stuff all the way. Remember with Galadriel, right? It was the same thing. Galadriel first projected outward, 
right? First, let's let's round out more the role that Galadriel obviously would have played, you know, in the second and third age, building up to this story. She, you know, the 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 this, the whole larger story of Sauron and the resistance to Sauron. Um, we first project her outwards into that. That's Galadriel 2.0, right? Then, oh no, now we got to project backwards, right? No, now given who she is, um, now we we have to invent a whole backstory, and we first quietly integrate her again, in Quadril 2.0, into the Silmarillion story, but then in, in Silmarillion 3.0, especially, we, we have to violently alter the Silmarillion story in order to accommodate the character of Goadriel as she has now been developed. So, too, you know, we get, we see, we see a similar pat- a pattern happening with the droogs there. Um, uh, yeah, oh, Charlie, that is a good point. Implacable in hatred does sound a lot like Turin. Yeah, but, you know... I don't know. In some way, I, the, the, see, my problem is the more I keep thinking about it, I'm like, man, if Turin grew up with a Droog mentor, I mean, unless he happened to have a really bad Droog mentor, an unusually unrepresentative Droog mentor, uh, you've got to think he would have learned a lot of the lessons that he really screwed up later in life. But anyhow. Um, uh, I'm going to... I'm up. Okay, so, okay, I'm, I think I'm definitely not going to get to the Blue Wizards tonight. But I, I do at least want to finish talking about Droogs. Um, the other thing we get of them is their prophecy. In the Annals of Numenor, it is said that this remnant, that is, the, there were, that there were some droogs that came to the final settlement, you know, the final refugee camp of Beleriand, um, you know, at the Isle of Balar. It is said that this remnant was permitted to sail over sea with the Atani, and in the peace of the new land, that is Numenor, throve and increased again, but took no more part in war, for they dreaded the sea. What happened to them later is only recorded in one of the few legends that survived the downfall, the story of the first sailings of the Numenorians back to Middle-earth, known as the Mariner's Wife. Now we have the story of the Droogs going backwards and retroactively altering the unpublished story of Aldarion and Arendis from Part 2 of Unfinished Tales, right? Of course there's no reference in Aldarion and Arendis to droogs of any kind, because they still hadn't been invented when he was writing that story. Um, but now they're being retroactively inserted into that story also. In a copy of this, written and preserved in Gondor, we have an alternative manuscript of Aldarion and Arendis that includes droogs, there is a note by this scribe on a passage, and by the way, this is exactly, again, Tolkien was such a good scholar, this is exactly one of the things that we get, you know, when you do medieval scholarship, sometimes some of the most valuable things are not just the primary text that's been copied by a scribe, but the stuff that the scribe, off his own bat, scrawls in the margin. This is why we have the text of the earliest Christian English poem ever written, Cadman's Hymn. Cadman's hymn, the poem which uh, the bard Cadman spontaneously sings in response to the angelic uh, uh, voice, uh, who tells him to com- to to sing a song of the creation, um, is the story is told by the venerable Bede and how Cadman was responsible for composing all of these awesome biblical uh, uh, poems in Anglo-Saxon verse. Except the whole thing's in Latin. It just gives a Latin paraphrase of of the song that Cadman sang. It gives like a prose Latin translation of Cadman's song. The only reason we have the Anglo-Saxon version is that one of the manuscripts of Bede, in one of the the, the scribe who is obviously an Anglo-Saxon himself, wrote in the margin the Anglo-Saxon version of Cadman's hymn, and that's why we have Cadman's hymn. So, Tolkien has inserted. 
uh, one of these similarly serendipitous scribal remnants uh, into one of the fictitious uh, manuscript copies of The Mariner's Wife, which has survived in Gondor. There is a note by the scribe on a passage in which the Druidine in a household of King Aldarion the Mariner are mentioned. It relates that the Druidine, who were ever noted for their strange foresight, were disturbed to hear of his voyages, foreboding that evil would come of them, and begged him to go no more. But they did not succeed, since neither his father nor his wife could prevail on him to change his courses, and the Druidine departed in distress. From that time onward, the Druidine of Numenor became restless, and despite their fear of the sea, one by one, or in twos and threes, they would beg for passages in the great ships that sailed to the north northwestern shores of Middle-earth. If any asked, Why would you go, and whither? They answered, The great isle no longer feels sure under our feet, and we wish to return to the lands whence we came. Um. Okay. Um. And Nancy says, knowing this, it makes me happy that Christopher tells us when he is transcribing something from Tolkien's margins. Yes, that happens a lot. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, Droogs, among the Numenorians, remember, um, you know, we have, starting with Aragorn and working backwards through his grandparents, right, uh, we have this reference to the tendency of the Dunedain, um, of the men of the we- of the men of Westerness, uh, to have foretellings, right, to be foresighted in this way, um, and we see this in Aldarion and Arendus, right? We have foresightings come upon them at various times. You know that they're able to foretell. Happens with Aldarion's mom, right? Um, isn't that right? Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Isn't she the one who, who does a foresight thing, or is it or is it Arendus's mom? Somebody's mom, isn't it? Somebody's mom does some foretelling? I'm already forgetting. It's so sad. But anyway, um, uh, among the Numenorians, though, the Drugs are famous for being foresighted, right? They uh, are able to foretell things um, even more clearly than the Numenorians were, such that they're, they're, they're you know... Um, here you go. It's like a, a really geeky idiom substitution, right? Next time you're tempted, you're tempted to say like rats out of a sinking ship. Instead, say like droogs out of Numenor. Uh, I'm sure that'll go over really well in party conversation. Um, but uh, anyway, um, uh, Arthur asks, why is their foresight described as strange? I think strange. That that's what I what I take noted for their strange foresight. Um, it's strange. It's it's notable even among them, like that they for they foresee things more, either differently potentially, and also more persistently, more consistently. I'm not sure, um, but more than the Numenorians do, as clearly they they see where things are going. I mean, the Great Isle no longer feels sure under our feet. Um, this puppy's going down, and we can tell hundreds of years in advance, right? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Drugs out of Numenor, exactly. Um. Of course, the other point, and I want to just touch on this briefly, which is, I think, so essential, um, and so non-Turin-like, uh, of the Drugs is 
they, how they are servants, how we see them submit themselves to be servants. Um, this sort of sense of self-sacrifice, of giving themselves f- to the service of others, seems to be something which is uh, a central part of their culture. And it's fascinating, because this is another thing, which I think, it's not that it's, you know, the laughter of the Drugs seems to me an embellishment of, and really kind of a shifting of that one detail that we get in The Return of the King about Khan Bari Khan. Um, but the, the, this aspect of their culture seems to be something which, of which we don't get any hint um, in, uh, in The Lord of the Rings, but which, which is in fact in some ways contrary to what we might expect. Given what we hear about Khan Bari Khan, I would expect that the Drugs would be keeping to themselves, right? That they would be this, um, this very isolated people that barely ever come into contact with anybody else. You know, that, that hide in the, in the, in the, the deepest wood and who, whose name is, is, is a mere, you know, legend and rumor to everybody around them. In fact, that's not what we see. We see them coming out of the woods all the time, um, to, uh, ally themselves with people. We see them seeking out others who are not of their race in order to help them in what seems to be a perfectly altruistic way. Um, and that is an aspect of their culture which I wouldn't really have expected. But again, like so many of these things which Tolkien adds on to the Lord of the Rings stories, when you take that add-on and then you go back to the story, all of a sudden new things open up that didn't seem to be necessarily clearly there um, originally. Um, by the way, you will have noticed that I couldn't resist. Uh, I, I was uh, indulging uh, in some highly puerile droogs puns. Um, I really... Uh, uh, um, I was tempted to title this class Say Yes to Droogs. Uh, I restrained myself from doing that. Um, I also was tempted to quote the passage about the uh, inveterate warfare between the orcs and the uh, and and the, and the drugs just so that I could subtitle the the um, the 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 slide uh, the war on drugs uh, but I but I didn't um, <laughs> but but anyway this this last one is my favorite it is said that when the Aorlingas came out of the north and passed at length up the snowborn seeking strong places of refuge in time of need brago and his son baldor climbed the stair of the hold and so came before the door on the threshold sat an old man aged beyond guess of years tall and kingly he had been but now he was withered as an old stone Indeed, for stone they took him, for he moved not, and he said no word, until they sought to pass him by and enter. And then a voice came out of him, as it were out of the ground, and to their amaze it spoke in the western tongue, The way is shut. Then they halted, and looked at him, and saw that he lived still, but he did not look at them. The way is shut, his voice said again. It was made by those who are dead, and the dead keep it until the time comes. The way is shut. And when will that time be? said Baldur. But no answer did he ever get, for the old man died in that hour, and fell upon his face, and no other tidings of the ancient dwellers in the mountains have our folk ever learned. Yet maybe at last the time foretold has come, and Aragorn may pass. Um, Now, in the context of The Return of the King, it is never made explicit, it is never even suggested that the old man in question is has anything in common either with 
anything physically in common either with the Pukelmen or with the wild men of the woods. That connection is not made. The only connection is by sort of accident of geography that this old man was there, was near the Pukelmen. But again, the connection is never asserted. Um, uh, but uh, but doesn't it sound like a droog? In the way that it, that is the, the description of how perfectly still it it sits, how they take it for stone, and how it doesn't move, how a voice comes out of it as it were out of the ground, um, and not only that, but the I know I know it says he's tall. I'm not saying that I think that Tolkien at the time that he wrote this in the Lord of the Rings was um, was thinking of this as the same kind of person as uh, Khan Buri Khan, but. Um, it's, but I can't read the Druidine when, 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 you know, the, you know, I, I talked about how so many of the details we get about the Druidine in this chapter come from these passages in the Return of the Ring, um, about the Pukulman and about, especially about Khan Bori Khan. This is the only reference we get to that, you know, what is heavily emphasized in the Druidine stuff about how still they can stand. Um, and about you know how the, you, they can be mistaken for statues and everything else. Um, it's uh, <laughs> Brianna says maybe he's a very important kingly droog, so he's taller, uh, maybe. Um, but anyhow, um, the uh, again the thing is the the point that I'm trying to make is not that this guy was conceived to be of the same people as Han Muri Khan at the time of the writing of the Return of the King, but rather. Um, it seems to me almost inescapable that these details that are given about this guy, who wasn't a wild man of the woods, presumably because of his height, um, when it was originally written, nevertheless inform his description of the Druidine is being kind of brought into the pot, uh, into this new little cauldron of story that Tolkien is brewing as he is, uh, as, as he is um, um, you know, expanding on this idea of the wild men. And so, um, in a sense, it's like, retroactively, this guy becomes a Druk. Because you notice not only does he um, have those physical characteristics, but, um, as if we can overlook his height, but even, to me, the description of how the Drugs, how and why the Drugs act, um, reminds me, or rather helps me to understand better, or even prompts me to ask a question, to ask and therefore to answer, a question which I never asked when I was just reading The Return of the King. And that is, why did this guy do this? I had sometimes asked, who was this guy? Um, I had never asked, why is he, what's, what's his purpose? Um, why did he, was he sitting there uh, in order to deliver this warning, this prophecy, to the Rohirrim, to Brago and Balder, um, and then die. In the context of um, in the context of the description that we get of the Drugs, it seems relatively clear. Right again, if we associate this guy with the Drugs, uh, you know, in, as his, as so much, as almost every uh, element of his description, except for that one word, tall, um, uh, um, 
as almost every other element of his description invites us to do, if we connect him with the Drugs, this does sound like something that a Drug would do. Right, to say, I am going to set my I'm going to sit here and wait. I'm going to post myself as a sentry um, outside this gate to make sure that nobody wanders in. To make sure that nobody comes in here to, uh, 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 you know, not, not, not knowing what they're getting into. And, uh, you know, runs afoul of the dead. I have a, me- I have a foretelling uh, that I have to deliver. And I, um, and again, and it's the, and the motivation for it seems to be primarily benevolent. Right? I mean, again, that he's 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 warning the Rohirrim for their own good. Balder, of course, will have none of it, and he's going to go in anyway. But um, uh, but of course, he is the he is the uh, the exception, which really proves the rule about what the the function that he was serving and warning people off. Um, but um, anyway, I, 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 I find this story fascinating when I go back um, and look at this in the context of the Druidine stuff. Um, and um, yeah, both Yana and Sarah were both asking, might he just have been a watchstone? <sighs> Conceivably. I don't know about the functioning of watchstone, watchstones after the Drug that makes them has died, if they become inert in some sense, or if their power remains with them. Um, perhaps we could say that the, you know, as Sarah, as Sarah King was saying, the voice really did come from the ground, perhaps, in the sense that it's coming out of a stone. Except, again, the description of him as being tall and kingly makes him the more unlike the Pukul men, as they're described. So I think certainly the the chapter, you know, the the description in The Return of the King, this as written as part of The Return of the King, not as later reconceived or recontextualized, but conceived in its initial context, um, is clearly distinguished from the Pukul men, and the description of him is nothing like the Pukul men. Um, but um, I think we could understand it in either way, really, but either way sort of says the same thing. I mean, it says that he died in that hour, Um Therefore, I take that to mean that he was not, in fact, a statue. Um, that there was, in fact, a corpse to be dealt with and hopefully buried in honor um, by Brigo and Baldar after this. Um, that's how I've always understood that passage. And yes, it is very Watchstone-esque, uh, Yana, as you say. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's... it's, it's um, but that's, of course, the point that the Druidine chapter makes about them, right? The Watchstones are the way they are because they're a lot like the Druidine, who are a lot like the Watchstones, right? Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. Um, so, there's, there's, yeah, oh, and good, and Roy points out that he's, he's described as withered, of course, too, which a stone wouldn't be withered. It might be weathered, but not withered uh, in the same way. Um, he does seem to, be, I mean, we seem to have a person who has sat there into extreme old age for the purpose only of delivering this warning and then dying. And he dies because he's completed his task. And who knows how long he's lived there, waiting for them to come and uh, for him to deliver his final message. Um, uh, but again, I, when I come back to that passage after the Druidine chapter, it looks really different to me. Um, and... Uh, I would, um, I'd be willing to put money on the 
the proposition that if Tolkien had revised, you know, done any kind of extensive revision on the text of The Return of the King after he wrote the Druidine stuff, he would have removed the tall and kingly bit. Uh, just a guess. Just a guess. Um, but the resonance uh, is to me really clear. Um, anyhow, I'll let you guys go. I've kept you for a long time. Uh, we will do the Blue Wizards next time, and of course we'll talk about Saruman and Gandalf as well. Um, again, we have class next Tuesday and next Wednesday, next Tuesday night and next Wednesday afternoon to finish up on Finished Tales. Um, we will certain talk about the Astari on Tuesday, finish up whatever we don't get to about the Astari, and talk about the Palantiri on Wednesday. Uh, do email me with any questions that you have. Um, I would be happy to try to integrate your questions, if we can, uh, into our discussion. So thanks very much for joining me. Don't forget, if you haven't voted yet, um, vote. Right, Vote on the next class. Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, The Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin, or Watership Down by Richard Adams. Those are, those are our three options. So if you have a vote, vote. Um, uh, you've, just been, you've been recently sent an email by Ed Powell. The voting is going to close. Um, uh, the voting is, is going to close on um, tomorrow night, late tomorrow night, you know, midnight Eastern time tomorrow night. Um, so you have, t- you have basically 24 hours from now in which to still vote. So, um, Okay. Arthur says you should vote for all three, and thus equilibrium is maintained. Is that a vote for Earthsea? Anyway, uh, (laughs) thanks very much, everybody. Um, We do have also a Riddles in the Dark this Friday. Uh, Don't forget about that. 10 a.m. on Friday, we will be talking about uh, the plot trajectory of the third film. We'll be thinking about the, the shape of the narrative and the story there is to tell, with specific focus being to the beginning of the story. Um, where is the third film going to start? Um, so don't forget, we will be doing Riddles in the Dark, Friday at 10, Unfinished Tales, closing up next week, voting for the next Mythgard Academy class by tomorrow. All kinds of announcements today. Uh, so thanks, everybody. And uh, I hope you will be able to uh, to join in on some or all of those things. Uh, thanks for joining me tonight and being patient with my really long class uh, and my uh, droog puns, which amused me much more than they probably should have. Thank you very much, everybody. Good night. <laughs>